It's May 1995. John C. Andrews proceeds haltingly through the series of doors and gates designed to prevent prisoners, like himself, from escaping the musty confines of the Wisconsin penitentiary system. As guards bring the final barrier to a squeaking close behind him, and John steps through the concrete walls and brick facade into the haze of early summer daylight, he enters a world that hasn't changed much since he left it 14 months ago. Since the conclusion of his trial in the murder of Sarky Swenson back in March 1994, a trial that John ended before the jury could deliberate his guilt or innocence by pleading to a lesser charge, a few major events have occurred. O.J. Simpson allegedly murdered Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The United States began hosting the Men's Soccer World Cup. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols set off a bomb in Oklahoma City, and the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, struck his final victim, a lobbyist from California. On the day John Andrews leaves prison, This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan is the number one song in the country, and the sitcom Friends is beginning to hit its stride. But all in all, John Andrews exits the prison and enters a society he knows, a world that hasn't moved on too far without him. He's even managed to retain a sense of his innocence, as the Alford plea John entered in his trial allowed him to continue to deny any involvement in Starkey Swenson's disappearance, while acknowledging there was a risk a jury might vote to convict, one that his plea would help him avoid. Since he maintains his innocence in the matter, John has never spoken with investigators about details of the accused murder. He's never given information on where Starkey Swenson's body might be found, and the police have no leads on a search area to even begin efforts to recover his remains. And that's how things stand for over 25 years. John Andrews has served time for the killing of Starkey Swenson, albeit while claiming his innocence, and the investigation is over. Starkey's body will likely never be found. And then, suddenly, we hear from Gene. I'm Matt Hiskus, co-host of Cold Case Frozen Tundra. This is episode five, Something Strange in Amro. Welcome back to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and your co-host in this investigation into the missing body of Starkey Swenson. If you've been following the story throughout this series, you know that Starkey Swenson was last seen leaving his home on bicycle on the night of August 13, 1983 in Nina, Wisconsin. His case was a missing persons investigation for over a decade before new witnesses stepped forward with information that led to the arrest and trial of John C. Andrews, who was charged with Starkey's murder. Following Andrews' trial, plea bargain, and prison sentence, nothing more really happens in the case. It's no longer an open investigation. The fact that Starkey Swenson's body has never been recovered is, without a doubt, a sore spot for the police. They love to close that final chapter of the investigation and bring that last sense of closure to Starkey's family. But it's not something they can devote detectives' time towards solving. 
so Starkey's body stays missing. Recently, nearly 40 years since Starkey Swenson went missing, and decades since any new information has been provided in the case, something happens. Police receive a call from Jean, we're keeping her last name off the record out of respect for her privacy, who sheds new light on a possible location for Starkey's remains. Yeah, that's right. Jean's in her later middle-aged years now. She was in her teens at the time of Starkey's disappearance. For many years, Jean knew that her aunt was involved in some capacity with John Andrews. They were quite close. He would be invited to family events, sat with the family at her uncle's funeral, and even was listed among surviving relatives in her cousin's obituary. But it wasn't until Jean obtained farmland passed through her family over the years that she learned details which led her to contact the police. So she hears these new details about John Andrews, thinks they could be relevant to the Starkey Swenson case, and she calls the police. And that's when the police contact you, correct? Yeah, it was shortly after that. At this point, it's been decades since Starkey went missing, and all that would typically be left of his body, if found, would be Starkey Swenson's skeletal remains. That's typically outside the area of expertise for police investigators. Just as they would call in a pathologist if they found a recently deceased body, one that has some soft tissue remaining, that is. They call me as an anthropologist if they need to find and identify a skeleton, or even individual bones. So I've been brought in to use the information that Gene can provide. With my team as scientific search experts and anthropology students, I hope to help find, identify, and excavate the body of Starkey Swenson. We are about to get into our conversation with Gene, where we will learn about her family, her relatives' histories with John Andrews, and the details she learned which she believes may aid in the search for Starkey Swenson's body. But I want to bring up one important point first. Jean's land, the farm previously owned by her aunt who was involved with John, is located in a small rural town surrounded by miles of farmland, about 25 minutes southwest of Nina, where Starkey Swenson was last seen. To get there, John Andrews would have needed to leave the home of Claire on the night of the murder and head in the exact opposite direction of his apartment in Appleton, Wisconsin. He'd have needed to travel through this small town as well as the many others which dot the Wisconsin countryside along that route without raising any suspicion. And he'd have to do so after he'd been drinking all day, per Claire Andrews' testimony in court. Normally, it would seem unlikely that John made this drive on that night, with or without a body. But we know that's exactly what John did. Jeansland is located in Omro, Wisconsin, the same small town John Andrews gave to investigators as his alibi for the night of Starkey Swenson's disappearance. John told police he went to the Drop Zone bar after leaving Claire's home on August 13, 1983. Jeansland is about 10 minutes down that road. Hello. Hi, Jean. Jordan Karsten calling you. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I have to find someplace quiet. I have a dog that um, 
I was hoping I'd have her next to me so I could quiet her down. But <laughs> unfortunately uh, not. So. I understand that. I've got a 90-pound golden doodle who thinks that he's a human, so I'm I'm used to doing the same kind of stuff. We apologize for the audio quality. Jean's land is deep enough in the Wisconsin countryside that consistent internet service is a challenge. So we're recording our phone call on speakerphone. So I've got with me here Matt Hiskus, who's helping me record this podcast. Hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. And so we've just... Um, so we're just, uh, I guess I'll tell you just, I did a little bit yesterday, but I'll tell you just a little bit about what we've got so far. So, so far using all old newspaper clippings, information from Winnebago County Sheriff, we've put together a history of the case from the day that Starkey Swenson goes missing, uh, all the way up to the conviction of John Andrews. And so... That's fascinating. Yeah, it's and it's a quite a fascinating story, you know, really when it comes down to it. A lot of people, a lot of connections, and so pretty interesting, especially having gone out and searched the property. Um so if you could, what we what would be great for us is if you could just tell us what you believe to be the connection of your property in the Omro, Wisconsin area to the Starkey Swenson case. Okay. Um my uncle worked with John Andrews and my uncle developed cancer and it was lung cancer and it was terminal. When my uncle went home for his final days, John Andrews started coming around and my mother, who we have the the house that you saw, um, my mother was going over and helping my uncle Rex's wife care for him and uh, You know, my uncle had said to my mom, he said, why is he here? I don't want him here. So that, I mean, my mom knew that, you know, everybody assumed that Andrews had killed Mr. Swanson. And so she was uncomfortable with him being around there anyway, but my uncle was as well. Um, Mr. Andrews, he, I mean, he became fast friends with my Aunt Dorothy and their daughter, Mary, who lived at that house as well. And, you know, even, like, after my uncle had passed away um, at the funeral, John Andrews was sitting with my aunt and her daughter. And, you know, my mom thought that was so odd, you know, because he wasn't family, um, but he had definitely inserted himself into their lives. So that was kind of an awkward situation for her and for us as well. Um, So my uncle passed, leaving the land to his wife, Dorothy. And after my Aunt Dorothy died, the land was left to Mary. And it was interesting. I was the personal representative for my cousin after she passed away. And I was writing her obituary, and I, she didn't have a lot, other than us, she didn't have a lot of family, um, so she was very, she had very close friends. And I sent it up to one of the friends to have her read it and see if she wanted any changes made. And she got back to me and said, you have to add John Andrews and his wife in the obituary. 
And, you know, I, I did want her to feel that she was included in the planning. And I wasn't crazy about the idea, and I knew my siblings wouldn't be happy with it either. But to make her happy, I included their names in the obituary for my cousin Mary. And so that's been after she died, my siblings and I, we've always hoped that when Mary wanted to relinquish the land, that she would allow us to buy it. And once she had passed, we talked to our attorney about, you know, us purchasing the land, you know, the 18 acres that is around there. And so we arranged for that, and we pulled our money, and we purchased that land from Mary's estate. So Jean says her land, which was originally purchased by her grandparents, is owned by her Uncle Rex and Aunt Dorothy during this time frame, and then eventually by her daughter Mary, before Jean and her sisters purchased the property. As Jean points out, she and several others found it strange that John Andrews was so deeply involved with their family, and so quickly, and was spending such a great deal of time with her aunt as her husband, Jean's uncle, battled a terminal illness. Yeah, I can certainly see why that would strike the family as odd. Even if Uncle Rex and John Andrews had become close friends during their time working together, which the facts don't really indicate was the case, you still wouldn't expect a co-worker to suddenly start spending all of his time with the family of a colleague who's ill and dying, especially with his colleague's wife and daughter. It just seems off. Right, so many years after her uncle's passing, Jean acquires the land that she remembers John Andrews used to visit often while spending time with Aunt Dorothy and Mary. And that's when she learns information that gives her even more cause for concern while talking with the longtime neighbor of the property, Joanne. And one day I was standing in Mary's house, back porch that overlooks the marsh and the river. It's just beautiful. And her, Mary's neighbor was there with me. And I don't know how we got to talking about John Andrews. I don't remember. But she told me, she said, you know, he used to garden down there at night. And being in the country, um, you know, you can't hardly see your hand in front of your face. And I said, he was garden down there at night? And she said, yeah. And that was kind of like a red flag for me. You know, what man is going to go out in the country, like pitch dark? And, you know, we had a lane that went from... Uh, my grandparents' property where I live, where we live now, we own, I should say we own, um, that went down to that area. So he had easy access to that land. And, you know, I thought about it and I talked with a few of my siblings and I said, you know, do you think there's a chance that he could have been burying Stucky down there? You know, I haven't put the timeline together in my head to know. The night that Sparky was murdered, uh, Mr. Andrews wasn't on them. And, you know, it, so you kind of start wondering about all of these things. And so I called the Nina police, and uh, they put me through to Lieutenant Peterson. And he asked me if I would come in and talk with him about it. So I did. And, you know, he looked up some on the case, and... It took a while because they'd had a couple of murders in Nina. 
and then um, COVID hit. So things slowed down quite a bit. But I said to him, you know, am I kind of nuts thinking that this is suspicious? And he said, no, not at all. So that's kind of how we got connected with the police department in Nina because they had jurisdiction at the point of um, Mr. Swanson's murder. And my siblings and I, I mean, it's nothing against Mr. Andrews. I mean, he's very old, and it's nothing like that. For us, if there is, if his remains are on our property, we would like them removed and given to his family so they can bury him properly. Um, that was our incentive to see if there was a chance that Mr. Swanson was actually buried there. This all takes place, Gene contacting and speaking with law enforcement, recently. It's new information in this case. But it's also not the first time the police became aware of the property Gene now owns. Yeah, that's right. In fact, as part of my involvement with this case and in the search for Starkey Swenson's remains, I was provided a briefing on the history of the case. Of course, the detectives involved in the search today are not the same ones who initially investigated the crime in the 1980s and early 90s, but they do have the notes created by those investigators while they were working to find answers. From that briefing, we learned that the detectives were at least suspicious of John Andrews' connection to the Omro property during the time they were investigating the case. It's unclear whether they had received specific reports or simply were interested in his activity there, but the notes indicate that it was an area of interest in their investigation. We don't know the particular reason for their interest, but the case history shows that investigators sought to search the property Gene now owns in the past, but they were unable to get permission for the search from landowners at the time. I mean, because the police called and tried to talk to um, some of the neighbors because they had come and tried to talk to Joanne. And Aunt Dorothy, Rex's wife, had called the Nina police and told them to stop harassing her neighbors. This is really interesting to me since, as we all know, police wouldn't be going around talking to neighbors of a property 25 minutes away from the city where a crime occurred unless they had a pretty good reason to do so. It's also interesting that the records show investigators could not convince the landowners to sign off on a search of the land at the time. This is purely speculation on our part, but it's fair to say that this fact could possibly support a theory that there was some relationship between Gene's family members and Andrew's going on, or at least a strong enough bond to drive them to want to protect John Andrews. Right. So Gene learns this new information, new to her at least, about Andrew's gardening on the property at night. This is troubling to her, and she reaches out to the police. Her position, contrary to her family member's prior stance on the matter, is that she and her family would now welcome a search of the property. If there is any chance at all, it could provide some answers or resolution for the families involved. As we heard her say, the process of reaching out to the police and relaying all of this information takes some time. They have to dig into a previously closed case, after all. But Jean doesn't stop there. In the meantime, she continues to see what can be done to find some answers. Well, one thing we did have 
a cadaver dog. That he, he was in training, so he wasn't certified or anything. And they had brought him up there, and he had gotten a hit down in that corner area. And unfortunately, the poor thing died that next summer. So, I mean, there was, the dog found something. Did anybody, there. did anybody excavate? No, mm-hmm. no, this was just, I mean, after we had purchased the land, it was one of those things. And my great niece, um, her friend had, I know that's kind of, it's weird, but her friend's grandfather knew someone that had a cadaver dog. And so uh, my brother Jim said, yeah, let's get it up there and see, you know, if there's even a chance he might be up there. And so they brought the dog up and he did get a hit there. And, uh, you know, my brother and I were talking today about it and, you know, he said, why don't we, why don't we get a cadaver dog? I don't know how much it costs, but, you know, and maybe there'd be a chance that we could give them, you know, a good place to start at least. Well, I think you're right. I think bringing cadaver dogs out there could be useful. We would have to talk to their handlers about if they would still be useful 35 plus years on. But I have some connections where we could talk to them and uh, and try to okay. ar- arrange for some cadaver dogs, probably very early in the search, in addition to the ground penetrating radar. Yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, we felt bad because nobody remembered exactly where the dog was. All I do remember was that the handler said that it was too wet back there. The dog could go there, but he couldn't go there mm. because of, you know, how damp it was. Mm. And being just up from a marsh, you know, on a pond close by, you know, it's wet and it's boggy back there. Sure. Um, so that... You know, what's one instance? I do have to say here that while it is definitely interesting that a cadaver dog alerted his handler that there may be remains present on Gene's property, we need to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. In my experience working in forensic anthropology, assisting in many cases, cadaver dogs can show us a potentially interesting area, but they don't provide proof that remains are present. I wouldn't base my entire search on a cadaver dog's results. They're trained to find decomposing flesh and tissue, but not necessarily decades-old skeletal remains like we've got here, correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. A cadaver dog might be much more useful to investigators searching for a recently deceased victim. But I've actually worked at sites with cadaver dogs in the past, and I've yet to see a dog successfully locate human remains. With that said, the fact that a dog thought it found human remains on Gene's property in the past only increases my interest in searching the site. It certainly doesn't hurt the chances that we might find the missing body. So, to reset quickly, you and your team will be joining law enforcement to search the property in the near future. Clearly, it's a very interesting site, one that police have been interested in searching for quite some time. You've got Andrew's strange relationship with Jean's Aunt Dorothy and Cousin Mary. He's so integrated into their family that he sits with them at Uncle Rex's funeral and is listed in Mary's obituary among the individuals she left behind. 
You've got this information from the neighbor, Joanne, that John Andrews used to pull his car down an access road on the property at night and garden in part of the land with assistance from his car headlights. And you've got Gene's report that a cadaver dog in training alerted to the possible presence of human remains in a marshy area of the field. All in all, this sounds like a pretty convincing case we might have something here. It certainly does sound that way, although there are other elements that don't fit quite as neatly. Nothing that would in any way exclude the possibility that Starkey's body is buried on the land, but still, some information seems to make the connection a little less obvious. For one, there's the issue of timeline. Jean mentioned that John Andrews started hanging around, at least to her knowledge, after her uncle Rex had no longer been able to work due to his terminal cancer. We asked her if she knew what year this was, and Jean was kind enough to look it up. Um, yeah, I was just in um, my heritage trying to look up the date that my uncle passed. Oh, oh, great. And Thanks. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Yeah, if you don't mind holding on, I'll finish getting that. Yeah, we don't Absolutely. mind holding on at all. Okay, he, did, uh, he died November 29th of 1993. Mm. And so how long before that do you think that Andrews was friends, like close friends with that family? Was it a while before that or not? I would say maybe two months at the most. Two months? I don't think my, it was, you know, his lung cancer had progressed quite a bit by the time he was diagnosed. Sure. So, and so Andrews was not ever hanging out at the property, like, say, 10 years prior to that? You know, not that I'm aware of. It doesn't mean that he wasn't. It just, um, I mean, because I think about why would my uncle be so uncomfortable with him being there if they worked together? So, clearly, at least to Jean's knowledge, John Andrews was not involved with her family and likely did not know about their land in Amro on August 13, 1983, the night that Starkey Swenson disappeared. John wasn't heavily linked with their family until a decade later, around the fall of 1993, at least not that Jean knows of. If, in fact, John Andrews had not yet met Aunt Dorothy and Mary and was not involved in a relationship with them in the early 1980s, it would suggest that he would not have known to bury Starkey Swenson there on the night of the murder. Right. I mean, that would certainly decrease the chance that Starkey's remains will be found in our search. But, and I think this is really important, I've personally had conversations with detectives and Jean's family members who co-owned the land in Amra with her, and they're all sure that John Andrews had a relationship with the family going back to the 1980s. And that he was present at the property, gardening with his headlights, around the time of Starkey Swenson's disappearance. In fact, some of the family members remember Andrews on the property the night of Swenson's murder and say that friends saw him at the drop zone bar later that night, covered in dirt. It's also interesting that John Andrews was spending time with Jean's family in the 1990s. Jean says John was hanging around with her family about two months or so before uncle's death in November 1993. So this would be September or October of that year. As we know, John Andrews was arrested in connection with Starkey Swenson's murder on September 16, 1993. He posted bail shortly after his arrest and was released pending his hearing. So at the time Andrews was spending his days with Jean's family at the property in Amro, 
possibly the time he was still doing his nighttime gardening, he was out on bail, awaiting his murder trial. This opens up a second possibility that could lead to Starkey's remains being buried on the land Gene now owns. That Starkey's body had been kept somewhere else after the murder and was moved to Gene's land a decade later. That's definitely a plausible scenario. If you remember, John's arrest in September 1993 came as a shock to everybody, John included. Just a month before, in August, investigators had been quoted as saying no new leads were developing in the case, and the case had gone cold. When he was arrested just a short time later, John's lawyers described him to the media as stunned over this development. Until his arrest, John had not been formally investigated since the John Doe hearing nearly a decade prior. It would not be outside the realm of possibility that he suddenly became worried that police would discover Starkey's remains as part of their newly reinvigorated search for evidence and, once he was out on bail, began hanging around the Omro property, sneaking back at night to move Starkey's body to a new location, or as he might have put it, gardening. Very true. So despite the potential issues with the timeline, there's little doubt Gene's property warrants a thorough search. And that's just what you and your team are preparing to do. There are two theories which would potentially place Starkey's remains on that land. First, that John was in a relationship with Dorothy already in 1983, much earlier than Gene was aware, and that he took Starkey's body there after leaving Shattuck Junior High on the night of the murder, stopping at the drop zone bar just down the road afterwards to establish an alibi. The second possible theory is that Starkey Swenson's remains were buried or stored elsewhere from the time of the murder until much later, when John met Dorothy and Mary and spent time on their property in Amro. Whether spooked by his sudden arrest, or maybe just because he recognized a unique opportunity to move the body to a very remote location, John then visited the site at night, driving down the gravel access lane into the property under the cover of darkness burying Starkey's remains by the light of his headlights. I think it's important for us to mention that there is even a third possibility, and that's that John returns to the Omro property in 1993 to move Starkey's body, which he could have buried back in the 1980s. And as we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, there are scientific ways that we can look for any small pieces of skeletal remains that might have been left behind if, in fact, he did attempt to move Starkey Swenson's skeleton off the Omro property. Really, when it comes down to it, we don't know what theories are correct until we search the site. And that's exactly what we're preparing to do. I've got a team of specialists armed with some amazing technology for this type of investigation that we're going to utilize in hopes of finding answers. Join us for our upcoming episodes as we follow up on all of this information discuss the science and technology of a search for buried human remains, and as we finalize our plans to hopefully recover the lost body of Starkey Swenson. Do you have questions about this case, our investigation, or the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast? We want to hear from you. Share your questions by messaging us on Instagram at Frozen Tundra Podcast, or visit our Cold Case Frozen Tundra Facebook page or by filling out the Contact Us section of our website, frozentundrapodcast.com. In an upcoming episode, we will be answering your questions on air and discussing our thoughts about the case at this stage. 
If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay.